I'm Nick Newton, joined by Will Miles. Welcome to Stand Up and Holler on tonight's episode. We'll go over Will's NIL article, Should Florida Overpay for Players? Uh, looking at player acquisition heading into 2024. A big week on the trail for Napier and company, both the transfer portal and picking up a couple of recruits. The NCAA is sniffing around. We found out about an investigation this week, and we'll wrap up with the tribute to former Gator Ronald Powell, who passed away this week uh, too soon. Well, let's dive right into your article here. You talked about we we, we talk about NIL a ton. Uh, might be our favorite topic of the offseason. It's officially the offseason because we're talking about NIL here, but we talking about should Florida overpay for players and why they. Why Why maybe they're not overpaying for players or why should we should stop referring to it as overpaying for players altogether. I thought you wrote a great piece this week. Uh, what, what was something that you walked that, that really drove you to write this article? Well, I mean, so what really drove me to, to write the article is twofold. One is that um, I think there's a debate going on within Gator Nation about whether it's worth it, quote unquote, to pay these players, because it's essentially pay for play at this point, right? With the NIL and the way it's set up, we call it NIL, but it's essentially pay for play. And then the other aspect of it is, is that it's just the way the world is, right? And and if you think about it, the, um, you know, Billy Napier left Louisiana to come to Florida for a better opportunity and more money. So to sit there and go, oh, somebody doesn't have loyalty to Florida when they transfer someplace else. Well, if they went there for a better opportunity and more money, then how's it any different than what Napier did or what any of us would do in our day-to-day job? And so I don't think, I think we need to stop thinking about it as overpaying. I think we need to look at it as it's essentially a free market with no salary cap, but an auction, right? And Georgia and Florida and Clemson and Ohio State and Michigan and and Texas and all these teams are bidding on the same players. And there's a very limited there's a very limited supply of those players and a very high demand. And when that happens, you get really significant price inflation. I mean, for, for those of us who've lived through the last few years with COVID and the supply chain and all the different things that have caused massive inflation within the United States, it's not a surprise, right? Too many dollars chasing too few goods makes the price go up. And what's ha- what we've seen is that the desperation of different teams, like you get a team like Old Miss and Lane Kiffin, who comes into the transfer portal and really pushes in the transfer portal. Well, Old Miss hasn't been that big of a player, except for the one year with Hugh Freeze, where, where there was clearly some weird stuff going on with Laramie Tunsil and some other guys. Old Miss has not been a major player when it's come to those top 30 guys, the five stars who go everywhere. But now Old Miss is playing a huge role in the transfer portal. And so Old Miss has driven the price up because now their supply of NIL dollars is sitting in that space. And so the price starts going up. So Lane Kiffin, I think, actually did a pretty wise thing by striking early in the transfer portal. Now you've got these guys, you know, you got uh, um, you know, some of the guys from Alabama who've it seems like all of them have gone to either Ohio State or Florida State. Those guys who've left Alabama since Nick Saban decided to leave, um, you know, those guys are out on an open market where there's a lot of dollars. And so they and the price is going to inflate for those sorts of guys. So the the point I was trying to make is, is it's just the reality. It's the way things are. I don't begrudge people who say I don't want my money to go to NIL. I think it's a little bit 
I think it's a little bit shady that the universities and programs have found a way to get fans to pay for one more thing, even after you're paying booster fees and season tickets and concessions and, and all that sort of stuff. And now they're like, well, we're going to pocket the TV money. Hey, you guys help us acquire players. At the same time, it's the rules. It's it's the way things are set up now. Do I wish they would change? Yes, I do. I wish the TV money would be shared with the players. But until it is, this is the path to winning. And so as an organization, Florida has to decide, are they in or are they out? And if they're in, then it means convincing the big money boosters that they need to pony up for this. It means convincing the fans that they need to sign up for Florida Victorious and support that. It means setting up an NIL apparatus that can compete with the Ohio States and the Alabamas and the Georgias and the Clemsons of the world. Or it means recruiting below that initial, below that top tier, both at the high school and the transfer portal level, and trying to make ends meet with a big time quarterback as really the only pathway to winning. And that's just the reality. So, you know, I, I think typically typically conflict or typically people get upset when expectations don't meet reality. So I'm looking at this saying, let's set our expectations appropriately. There's a story that came out today that Ohio state spends somewhere in the 13 to $15 million range for their roster for NIL. Well, if you're not willing to spend that much, then you shouldn't have the expectations that you're going to compete with Ohio State. And I guarantee you, if Ohio State is competing at that level, then Georgia's competing at that level, and Alabama's competing at that level, probably LSU's competing at that level. And so if Florida doesn't want to compete at that level, that's cool, but then we got to temper the expectations down and not expect national championships and playoff appearances in the same way you might have back in 1992 or 2002, where there was an expectation that Florida is going to reign in many ways because Florida was set up as the bully on the block. And as of right now, that's not the case. Yeah, new world entirely. I The point that I am 100% on board with is I would love to see the system be run entirely by the schools, entirely by the money they're getting from football. I would like to see that incorporated in and because I think right now between the NIL fund, you even see a dynamic within the fan base right now where there's a, a vocal, a vocal portion of the fan base that isn't happy with the fact that Scott Strickland's announcing renovations to the swamp, which is going to cost that $400 million. So, so is that 400 million that we have that we could be putting toward NIL? People are asking. So it's, you're going to have that conversation constantly until this, changes i i don't see this the only reason i don't get too caught up in the current iteration is i think we are in a temporary moment i i, I do think things are shifting i do think things are rapidly changing and i think five years from now it's going to look differently than it does today i, I don't think this is a system we're settled in on for the next 20 to 25 years right now no i i think the the dollars are only going to go up as the playoff takes over and the professionalism of the athletes is only going to be pushed further and further as court cases work their way through. And that's really what's pushed. Even the NIL changes and the transfer changes and all those sorts of things have the impetus for that has been, how do we prolong what we have without getting sued? 
Like that has been the entire impetus, right? That that the NCAA opened up the transfer portal because they were afraid they were going to get sued for restraint of trade. And the minute they got sued for restraint of trade and they lost, then all of a sudden you were going to have the transfer portal anyway, and you were going to have to start paying these guys. Same thing with NIL. It was the Supreme Court, um, Kavanaugh specifically cited no other entity in the United States has the ability to run its business this way. And so the NCAA said, well, okay, the, this particular case that Kavanaugh is speaking to doesn't force us to pay the players. Let's open up an avenue for players to get paid, but not necessarily get the TV money, and that will prolong it until we get sued. So we've seen some movement in the last few years for players to unionize. That's where this is going to end up. You're going to end up with a collectively bargained solution between players and Either the NCAA, but probably not even the NCAA, probably broken off entities that are versions of the SEC and the Big Ten, potentially the Big 12 and the, and the and the ACC as well. You'll see this broken off sort of collective bargaining where football gets separated off from everything. And that's where we're going to end up. The question is, how long is it going to take to get there? And how patient is the organization when it comes to Florida or any other organization to sort of maintain the status quo or just sort of sit there? And and get your brains beat in by the Georgias and the Alabamas of the world in the meantime. Because if it turns out to be like I would have never 20 years ago predicted that it was going to take this long for the amateur amateurism model to change. And so we could be sitting here 20 years from now looking at name, image, and likeness as the exact same thing. Because the reality is as long as the money's coming in to the players, what incentive do they have to sue? And that's really what's happened is NIL was just a way to reduce the incentive for these guys to sue. And because once a lawsuit goes through, the floodgates are going to open up. So some entrepreneurial lawyer is at some point going to sue the NCAA for back pay associated with TV money or something like, you know, I don't know the legalese of it, but they're going to go after the TV money. And when they do, that's when everything will start to coalesce. But until then, it's this weird in-between where a $500 handshake and a promise of a job to your dad is no longer enough to entice a recruit like it might have been 10 years ago. But the money that has to be raised can't be that $400 million because that's the university's money. And the university is not allowed, given the rules, to give that money to a player. Now, money's fungible, right? So an organization can say, stop giving to our building campaign and instead give to our collective. But that implies two things. One, that the people who are, who are going to say, stop giving to us are incentivized to do that. And then the other thing is, is that if they say, don't put 10 million here, put 10 million over there, that the people that they tell to do that will actually do that. And those are sort of the two things that they're battling, I think, is that I think there's probably in every program, not just Florida, I think there's an internal pull by the people who get rewarded for building facilities, building you know, women's sports, building non-revenue sports, not necessarily just women's sports, but non-revenue sports by on the backs of the revenue sports that that's part of how they get graded. That's part of the value that they bring to the university and certainly the facilities, the way it looks, all that sort of stuff plays a huge role. And then on the other side, you've got, um, you, you've got an entity or a program or a organization that Billy Napier's leading that doesn't really much care about volleyball or, or badminton or whatever's going on over here and just wants to win football games. And I suspect that in many organizations, many programs, many universities, there's some tension there between those and overcoming that tension, having a unified message and a unified 
um, sort of sales pitch for where should the money go is going to be a big, big driver in terms of who succeeds and who doesn't. Yeah, it's it's a version of the sport. I'm very open-minded to the concept. It's like you said, it's unbelievable that it took this long to get here. Let me talk about paying the players because the money's been big for quite a while now. But the thing that I look at, Will, is even people who love the sport, even who people who are open to the idea, how many of them do you know like the current format of what's going on? Well, I mean, it, it uh, the reality is, is that it's, it's a free market system at this point, a true free market system. The, uh, the difference is, is that the university of Florida, when someone flips to UF gains a benefit without having had to spend $1 on it, right? It doesn't cost the university anything unless they're diverting funds from someplace else, um, in, in terms of their boosters and those sorts of things. So that's, that's the thing is that typically, if so, like, let's use read and reaction, right? We're going to put up this preseason magazine. We're going to actually pay for the thing to get printed, right? We're going to, we're going to interface with people to distribute it. Now, look, it'd be great if we could get a bunch of people to come and pay us to print the magazine. In many ways, that's sort of what we do with the sales, right? Is you have these retained earnings that you put back into it, but we're not asking, we're not asking each individual person to fund that, that's what's happening in college football is they're asking their customers to come in and fund the product. That's an interesting business model. They've found a revenue source that I'm not sure everybody believed existed. And they've found a way to soak people who they, you know, I mean, look, you don't pay $10 for a hot dog at, at the stadium because the hot dog costs $10 to cook. You pay $10 for the hot dog because they know that you're there and you're hungry and you'll pay the price while you're inside. And so that's what's happened. They've found a market. Between boosters who boosters and and fans and supporters who have all decided that to heck with whether this is moral, to heck with whether the schools should be paying for some of this. We don't care. We want our team to win. And that desire to win is what is forcing this market and, and pouring this money into the marketplace. And it, look, I mean, from a business perspective, I tip my cap to all these administrators who are making bank while not having to share any of it with the players. From a moral perspective, I wish they would share it with the players and just get it over with, if for no other reason, because I think I think they'd make out better over time if they actually negotiated a salary cap through some sort of collective bargaining. Right. The thing right. Is, but the thing is, if I'm Georgia, I don't want to accept that because I'm kicking everybody's butt right now. If I'm Ohio State, I don't want to accept that. And so this is going to be the challenge for college football, I think. If you think about it, it took years and years and years and years for the NFL to agree to the salary cap that it agreed to, not just because they had so much pushback from the players, but because teams like the Dallas Cowboys and Jerry Jones really enjoyed being able to go out there and get Deion Sanders when they felt like they were one one player away from winning the world, winning the Super Bowl. And that's what you're seeing right now is Ohio State, after three straight years, was going, we're tired of losing to Michigan. We're just buying everybody. Like every single person who's out there, we're going after. And essentially, Ohio State is the Dallas Cowboys of college football right now in terms of what they've done in, with the transfer portal, what they've done with recruiting, those sorts of things. Georgia's sort of in the same stead. 
and you look at some of the other programs, it's it's more like the Indianapolis Colts were never good when I was growing up. May, not because not just because they didn't have Peyton Manning, but because they didn't spend as much as those other teams. And so, how long it takes to get to that, and how to get everybody to agree to it, I think is going to be the bigger uh, the bigger undertaking here. Because if if I was a Georgia fan, I wouldn't want anything to change. We win every year. I think you're painting the Dallas Cowboys in a highly flattering light. Based on that comparison, so well, uh, they haven't won anything since the salary cap was in, in, instituted. I don't think that's a coincidence. Uh, yeah, so Georgia will choke in the playoffs every year if we get a salary cap. I'm fully in favor of it. The bigger point, I was the bigger point I was driving at is, is that the people I talk to, the the people I know that are diehard college football fans, it's far more negative on the current format of college football. But the people I've talked to, not they're not they're not funding the entire college football program at some school. Like th- that's a small crowd. That's a small crowd of people. You only have to turn off a couple of them to see those funds shut down. And that's what that's what I'm saying. That if, if a couple of them get too turned off by the system, I, I I do think that that could be a problem down there. They might be going in on it right now and saying, okay, it's a new way to do things. We'll try it. We'll see how that goes down the road. And that's that's what that's the risk you're opening yourself up to. That's the risk you're opening yourself up to if you keep this type of approach toward it. And, and in some ways it's interesting. I do find it interesting in some ways. In other ways, like, hey, do I think it's cool that if your coach leaves now? That was always the big thing in college football. Saban stays till right after the early signing period, right after the playoff games, right? He gets to, he gets to stay, and then all those guys who just signed are are stuck in Tuscaloosa. They came to play for Nick Saban. I I think it's fair to hit the market if your coach leaves for sure. And we we got a couple of those examples coming up here. But you look at other situations where guys are just leaving either because they want to or because they have an opportunity in another school. Like there's there's it's crazy the amount of movement there is right now. I'm glad in some ways, but in other ways, I do think that college football has not been like this ever, pretty much. And I do think it's a it's a lot of change all at once. And so I think oh, yeah. you're going to turn off part of your fan base overnight. So you- and I think that's the that's the part you got to look at and say what parts of college football were good, and, and what parts do we need to hold on to a little a little more than we are right now. Like I don't think the whole system should be thrown out in, 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 overnight like this, but I do think we'll get some we'll get back to some of those parts, but I think they're gonna have to come through what you're talking about, where you get some type of a, a players union so you can sign contracts and you can actually make deals for to create a little stability. I do think people enjoyed the stability of college football before. And I think that's one thing that's just just right out the window, man. That's been right so out the it, 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 it's interesting. So college football's main value proposition has always been the the tradition, the connection people have with the university, all that sort of stuff. And that used to be the connection. So the the comparison I would make is to Major League Baseball. That used to be the way people felt about baseball. I can remember growing up, Griffey Jr., Frank Thomas, um, Maddox, Pedro Martinez, Randy Johnson, those guys, you felt like you had a connection to. They, they moved around a little bit. You know, Griffey goes from Seattle to Cincinnati, but not all the time. But you had the steroid era, all that sort of stuff. And I think more than anything what the steroid era pointed out to me is that Bud Selig didn't give a crap about the fans, mm-hmm. that Bud Selig really was out about how do I make the owners the most money possible? And Bud Selig's net worth is $400 million. 
So he doesn't like he doesn't care beyond just maybe what his legacy might be. What baseball like what he left behind when he left Major League Baseball. And I think that's the thing you got to guard against if you're one of these conferences is if all you do is try to squeeze out every single last dollar out of your fan base that you end up being like Major League Baseball where there are diehards who just love baseball and are committed to it and the local contracts and all that sort of stuff and the money coming into baseball right now is ridiculous. But the connection that people have with baseball, the the place it has in the actual cultural landscape is very, very different. And, and that's the thing they'll have to guard against. I don't know if they'll be successful. I don't know that the people who are in charge are incentivized. I don't think they're incentivized by where will college football be three decades from now. I think they're incentivized by how do I maximize dollars and revenue to my shareholders? And the shareholders are going to be you know, if, if you're if you're a conference commissioner, the shareholders are your schools. And we've already seen Florida State is going nuts in in the in the ACC. And the the being left out of the championship had something to do with it. At the same time, that was the last straw because they were unhappy with the negotiated uh, the, the negotiating parameters that the ACC had taken. And that's just the reality is they're not leaving the ACC because the ACC is not best for college football. They're leaving the ACC because of money. And that's what it really boils down to. And the reason they're stuck is because they signed contracts and the penalties for leaving will be significant. And so look, just like everything, you got to follow the money and you hope you get cooler heads that will prevail and will bring back or at least preserve some of the things that we love about the sport. Sports changing, and that's just the reality. So again, I go back to what I said earlier about reality and expectations. My expectations are that the administrators and the people in charge and the commissioners are going to try to maximize revenue. So I'm not going to be disappointed or I'm not going to be mad when they do something that goes against the tradition of college football or goes against what I the things that I love college football about. It's just the reality of the way things are. That doesn't mean I like it. It doesn't mean that I won't look at it and point out, hey, this is kind of stupid. You sh- Like long-term, this doesn't have a whole lot of health for the sport. At the same time, the guys who have been trying to maximize revenue for years and years and years, while people have been sitting there going, the players need to get paid. Like the guys, those guys have made so much money over the last 30 years building college football from a regional sport back when Nebraska was winning national championships or, or not even winning national championships back in the 80s to now what you've got where you've got a behemoth like Alabama who brings in a guy making $10 million a year as Saban's replacement. Like coaches would have laughed at that 30 years ago about the amount of dollars that are flying around just for the coaches. So, I mean, look, the amount of money, eyeballs, people, all that stuff associated with college football, it's no longer the value proposition that I said earlier, the value proposition used to be tradition. Value proposition now is gambling. That, that's what it is. It's in the NFL. It's in, it's in college football. That's the value proposition. That's where the money sits. And, and I think that's where most of the emphasis is going to be. And that sucks for people of, who like tradition, but that is what it is. There's a lot of changes that are great. I welcome them. I welcome a lot of changes, but it, I, I do think we got to find that happy medium in some areas. I, I do love that the players have the ability to move around to a point that, you know, I, I saw TJ Finley's transferring to Western Kentucky and it had all the logos on where he's played well, it's like LSU, Auburn, Texas State, Western Kentucky. I'm like, well, 
Yeah, that's a college career right there. Like, hey, stick around, do another next year, man. Hit another school next year. Like, yeah, we got some guys that have played for Florida. Yeah, I think I saw Mincy's up. He went to Tennessee. He's at Kentucky now. You got half the SEC East, man. Good for you. You got half the SEC East in your college career. It, I do think there's some things. There, there's. I think there needs to be some kind of limits on some of that stuff. But for years, we always said, why do the coaches get a move and the players are stuck? I. It's good that the players are getting some power, but we went all the way the other way with it. Now, <laughs> I think it needs to be a happy medium there somewhere. So, well, so, I, so it's it's interesting. I I think what you're going to find is that the value of staying is going to be significant for some people, right? So, um, so if you think about like the NBA. The NBA has just gone through its play, player empowerment with LeBron and his decision and all that sort of stuff. But LeBron James, when he retires, is going to be known as probably the second best player to ever play in the NBA. But he's not going to be someone who belongs, who belongs solely to Cleveland, Miami, or Los Angeles. He'll belong a little bit to each of those, but he won't belong to, to one solely. Steph Curry is probably going to retire as a Golden State Warrior. And he's going to belong to the Golden State Warriors. And while LeBron's career is more impressive, I suspect that the connection that Curry is going to have with the city of Oakland and San Francisco might have a longer lasting impact than LeBron in those three places. Now, maybe not because LeBron's so transcendent. But you think about Durant, right? Durant starts in Oklahoma. If he'd have stayed there, he would have been a legend in Oklahoma. If he'd have, if he'd have stayed in, in Golden State and they'd won like five or six championships, maybe he's a legend in there. But no, he decides to go to Brooklyn. And then he decides to, to go to Phoenix. And even if he wins a championship in Phoenix, it's like, okay, well, you know, you're sort of a mercenary anyway. Who does he belong to? I think that's what you're going to find in college sports is that there's going to be guys like Trevor Etienne, who spent a couple years in Florida and then spent a year or two at Georgia off to the NFL. Doesn't really belong to either fan base. Sure. When they, when they announce who they are on, on NBC, when they're showing who the guys are before, you know, we'll sort of look and go, Hmm, is he going to say Florida or Georgia? Like, what's he going to say? And then he'll say it's high school anyway. But when, when you, and that'll sort of be the extent of it, right? as opposed to guys who spent three or four years with the program. So let's say Lagway wins an SEC title, doesn't quite win a national championship, but wins an SEC title with Florida in three years, goes pro, and is like the third pick in the draft going to I don't know, the Las Vegas Raiders, right? Well, when the, when the Raiders come on, Florida fans are going to root for DJ Lagway because he stayed there for three years, because he hopefully helped build something, and because he helped win while he was here. And that will mean something as opposed to if he spent a couple of years here and then transferred to like Washington, led Washington to the playoff and then, and then got drafted by the Raiders. He's in the exact same place, the exact same number of years, but his connection to Washington, his connection to Florida would be very, very different. So I think that's what you're going to find is you're going to find there's going to be some value to sticking in certain places for certain players. And there's going to be obviously value from a playing time perspective and exposure perspective and an NIL dollars perspective to move. And it's, and people are going to have to start, start to make that balance. It'll be interesting to see how things develop. Uh, let's move on. Good, good read though, by Will Miles up on readingreaction.com. Go check it out. Uh, solid article this week. Will. Uh, let's pop over to the recruiting trail. Solid, solid week. Got a couple of those pieces back that we missed out on, Will. We talked about Nick Saban retiring. We did talk about what the ripple effect of that's going to look like and how it might potentially affect Florida. Here's one way. 
Jameer Grimsley, Tampa Catholic player, four four star DB, six foot three, one eighty five. That is a massive defensive back. Former wide receiver, ran a ten point eight four hundred meter dash. Big pickup for new defensive back coach Will Harris. Uh, Will, I think this is this is something where we talk about we talk about the the ability to move around the role with the thirty days after your coach leaves to make a decision. Hey, he went in to Bama. He, practice with the team in bowl practice and his coach up and leaves. Okay. I, I think you do have, I, I think that's a good case to, to head somewhere else, but at the same time, uh, you know, say, I don't think there's going to be a perfect time for saving to retire at any point. So this is going to, this was going to happen some, sometime, some class, but the Gators are the beneficiaries of it. FSU's claimed what, like uh, about 8% of Alabama's roster. It's good to see the Gators get in on one of these guys. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, I think Florida specifically at the defensive back position needs bodies and needs high-quality guys, and Grimsley fits that profile. He was somebody who Florida had recruited heavily when he decided to go to Alabama, so it's not like um, you know Florida was just sort of out of the blue. I think in many ways this is the value of having official visits, and even you know we sort of joke about finishing second a lot in the recruiting battles. At the same time, Florida finished second in this recruiting battle, and then when an opportunity arises, now you finish first. And I think that's one of the things that we're going to have to consider – as we start looking at these different recruiting classes is, is that, you know, typically it's been early signing day, you know, where everything sits, but, but given that there are guys who commit and then transfer afterwards um, with coaching changes and things like that, there is going to be talent out there available after that early signing day. That's a little bit different than it's been the last few years, but look, I mean, a guy who's from the state of Florida, right? I mean, that that's something we've been talking about a lot from the state of Florida He's the 23rd ranked player in the state. So not a top 10 player. And honestly, that's what Florida kind of needs in the state, but four stars pretty much across the board in, uh, in all the different rankings and, and at a position of need because defensive back is definitely a position of need for Florida. So Grimsley, a big time pickup for Florida. Glad to see him as a Gator. Defensive lineman, Dontre Robinson, another prospect Florida lost out on the recruiting trail had signed with Texas in December ends up being released from his letter of intent earlier this week and signs with Florida. Accumulated 216 total tackles, 42 for a loss, 21 sacks, and an interception, and two forced fumbles over 34 games in three varsity seasons at Jones High School in Orlando. So, again, another another high-level Florida prospect that ends up Orlando Jones uh, High School here. So, another Florida prospect ends up choosing an out-of-state school bounces back after defensive line coach Bo Davis heads to LSU for the defensive coordinator position uh, position at LSU under Brian Kelly had been the primary recruiter for Robinson at Texas. Yeah. Well, I mean, he'd taken four unofficial visits at Florida, so it wasn't like he didn't have interest, um, you know, and, and, you know, Florida, Texas, Georgia, Ohio State, and Miami are the ones on his list. So uh, big, big time prospect, like you mentioned, Orlando. So again, they're getting a guy out of the state of Florida. And so the risk of him transferring pro- from Florida, probably a little bit less if things don't necessarily go great right off the bat. Six foot three and a half, 315. So he's a big boy in the middle. 
And obviously we've been talking for a couple of years about Florida needing big boys up the middle. So there's going to be playing time at Florida, no doubt about it, especially with guys like Chris McClellan transferring out. There are going to be opportunities for guys to step in. And Florida, for as much as they've done with recruiting on the defensive line, did not in this 2024 class have a ton of prospects on the defensive line. Robinson very quickly becomes one of the best prospects they have coming in in this 2024 class. And so a big time addition can, again, I mean, <laughs> nowhere on Florida's defense is it not a position of need, but interior defensive line, linebacker and defensive back are area specifically corner is where Florida needs some help and some depth. And Robinson's going to bring that there on the interior defensive line. Well, it, that's actually a good point. There was something to keep in mind for next early signing day. If you just looked at the class on early signing day, in December, Lecrae signs, Boru signs, and it's pretty light along the defensive front with Robinson the Robinson edition here, you also added George Gums Jr. from NIU, Brian Taylor from Blinn College, and Joey Slackman from Penn in the transfer portal. It's quite a different group today than it was a little over uh, about a month ago in December. Yeah, I mean, look, Florida's not the only one dealing with turnover, right? I mean, um, everybody's dealing with it. Florida has brought in a bunch of guys to the transfer portal. They've also lost a guy, a lot of guys through that transfer portal. There's, they still probably got room to bring in a couple more. I'd have to go look at my actual scholarship numbers to know exactly where they sit. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the days of of exclusively building through high school recruiting are over because the risk that those guys, if they sit behind somebody are going to transfer someplace else is significant. And so you don't have four years to develop guys. You're going to have to play guys earlier. You're going to have to know whether they're locked down in their NIL deals. And then the other thing is, is that you're going to have guys who don't work out. And so you bring in three guys, two of them don't work out. You figure out, oh, well, there's somebody else out there on what's essentially a free agent market. You pick those guys up, and all of a sudden you got to ask some other guys to leave. There's going to be a lot more turnover, a lot more churn within the rosters, um, which is one of the reasons why you know Florida just hired essentially what's going to amount to a general manager coming in, a guy from Texas A&M. Um, and that's why that's an important position because you're going to have to start to predict who's going to come free, who do we want to move off the roster, who do we want to move on, how do we want to make these things better. So, um, you know, the the twenty four seven sort of they, they've got this roster, uh, the composite roster ranking where they, every year they rank the talent on a team. And for the most part, it's just been a summation of the four recruiting classes before. And that's sort of what you've seen. That's no longer going to be the case, right? I mean, a team like Alabama, who really has had the last two recruiting classes pretty decimated by all the transfers with Nick Saban leaving, their overall talent level is going to drop compared to where they've sat in the recruiting rankings. A team like Florida, a team like Florida State, a team like Ohio State has an opportunity to swoop in, get those guys, and uh, and and boost their overall talent. So, yeah, roster building, roster construction is changing, and uh, different teams are going to have to change with the times. I think, you know, a couple, couple months ago, I wrote an article after early signing day, and it started with a Lane Kiffin quote uh, tweet that he had, just adapt or die. And that's really what's going on in college football is everybody's going to have to adapt because there are now – multiple ways to build a roster and the old way of building a roster is probably no longer an optimal way to do it. And so you have to find a way to do it within the confines of the rules and the limitations and the transfer portals and the money and all that stuff just requires a different level of thinking and adaptation. So rough, rough end to the recruiting class in, in the early signing period, but picked up a couple 
couple pieces there heading in the right direction. Maybe see what they can do down the stretch here. Add another piece or two along the way to recover from that big hit at the end. Uh, Will, another piece of good news on the recruiting trail this week, Jalen Wiggins out of Rickards High in Tallahassee, four-star prospect. Big guy, 6'4", 250-pound prospect. Quick, quick along the front cover, sideline to sideline very well. Uh, I think he even lined up a tight end a couple of the clips I've seen him. He could get down the field. But uh, number seven, defensive lineman, number 92 overall prospect on the 24-7 composite ranking. Uh, 102 total tackles, 17 sacks, 21 tackles for a loss, according to Max Preps here. One forced fumble and three pass breakups over 18 appearances at Rickards High in Tallahassee on the varsity squad here. So, hey, that's a nice addition Another good look. We talked about how strong the defensive line class has been in the last month, picking up from just the two prospects on early signing days. So you're seeing Chapman along the defensive front having an impact early. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, Wiggins is an important prospect because 2025 needs to get going. He's the 93rd ranked overall prospect in the 24-7 composite, 12th in the state, 6'4 and a half, 245. So you are talking more like a Kelby Collins and less like a Dontre Robinson, right? There's just there's a difference between what you're going to be asking for out of that guy. At the same time, defensive linemen, obviously where Napier and company want to build. And so a big deal having him in there. I, I don't want to undersell either the fact that they just went and took him out of Mike Norvell's backyard. And if they can hold on to him, and that's obviously going to be the big thing, if they can hold on to him, this has been Florida's Achilles heel now for the last eight years, really, is other teams coming into their backyard and pulling players out of the state. If they can start heading into Tallahassee and pulling guys to Gainesville, now all of a sudden it makes a big difference for Florida, and you can start to see them building around the local talent there. So the 2025 um, class right now has Wiggins from Tallahassee. You got Waltez Clark out of Tampa, and then you got Josiah Abdullah out of Atlanta. So again, you start talking about that that circle around Gainesville and two of the three are within a circle of about 150 miles mm -hmm. and then a third up to Atlanta where you're not getting that much further. So one guy they've pulled out of Kirbyville, one guy they've pulled where they'd be battling with Miami and a guy they've pulled out of battling with Florida state winning those sorts of battles are going to be important for Florida moving forward. So this is a good sign at least early on with this 2025 class. Well, good week on the trail for Napier and company. Definitely. Some welcome news in light of the the sputtering finish, but you know he looked. They also did the final rankings on the uh, for the, for the twenty four seven side, I believe too. I believe Lagway ended up in Lagway and McCray ended up in the top five too. So two of the top five players coming in. So like like we said, we talked about it last month with the class. Terrible finish in a lot of ways, but there are some good pieces to be excited about. Going forward here, uh, one piece that's not super exciting. It might not be much of anything. Well, the NCAA investigation comes up this week. Uh, Matt ba Baker from the Tampa Bay Times reported that the Gators are under investigation by the NCAA. They received the notice back in June 2023. The specific nature of the investigation, potential violations have not been, uh, are not specified in the four page note, but it, it, 
is sent it there's likely that it's going to center around the NIL deal for Jaden Rashada, 13.8 million dollars uh reportedly from the third party Gator Collective. Deal obviously didn't go through. I don't really what what uh, I don't wish to rehash all of the Rashada story here. I think we cover that pretty well in this show, and you probably heard about it. Anybody, if you watch any Gator source, you've probably heard this story a million times at this point, so we don't have to go too deep onto it. But, well, I felt like, the first off, I feel like the NCAA is relatively toothless on it. We just saw them crown a national champion with a, a guy they've been investigating for the better part of a couple of years now and served multiple suspensions. So, in terms of the actual program, we'll see what happens here. But you had to know that something was coming. We weren't going to see the end of Rashada just yet. So I I don't even think – I think there's going to be plenty more on Rashada before we can uh, consider this story dead and buried. Yeah, I mean, it was a mess, right? I mean, we all knew it was a mess at the time. It was a black eye for the program at the time that it happened. And the fact that they were – they've been investigated about it, okay, that's not great. Um, Nick De La Torre went on Andy Staples podcast three, four days ago and was talking about it, it looks like the central claim has to do with the actual dates that were written into the contract with Rashada and that the dates make uh, essentially make it a inducement to play versus a name image and likeness deal. Um, how important that is, how much, how many, like whether the NCAA really wants to hammer Florida on it. And honestly, how hard Florida wants to hammer back, I think is going to be the thing that sort of dictates where this goes. You know, you mentioned the Michigan case, Michigan wanted the national championship. Michigan was a hundred percent behind Jim Harbaugh. And so Michigan was going to do whatever was necessary in order to make sure that Harbaugh was able to deliver on on essentially what he was able to deliver on this year with that national championship. If Harbaugh was going five and seven, would they have used the stuff that was going on with the, not just with the, with the videotaping of signals, but the other stuff, the impermissible contact during COVID and that sort of stuff, would they have used those things to, to, remove a coach with cause, you know, you could make an argument that given cheating and given some of the things that, that have been reported that potentially they could have gotten rid of Harbaugh with cause, but they didn't want to get rid of Harbaugh because Harbaugh was winning and Harbaugh was bringing in money and Harbaugh was, was producing what they wanted to produce. And so that I think is going to be one of the big questions here is how much does Florida believe in Billy Napier? How much did Napier have to do with what was going on? How much is provable? Um, you know, obviously if there's a contract out there with, with, you know, Florida collective signatures on it and and Jaden Rashada signatures on it, then there's language to be parsed. And that language may be, you know, a smoking gun that that makes Florida get into some sort of trouble. But the problem is, is what I said earlier is that the NCAA or at least the administrators within these college programs, the only thing they're trying to do is prolong how long they go without being sued. And if they come down with a hammer on anyone, they're going to get sued. And so the only way they come down with a hammer is if the school actually wants the hammer for a couple of reasons. Tennessee's, and, Tennessee's done that before. They pick up the phone. They've called well, it on themselves. <laughs> we well, saw that again, recently. I mean, that's that's what I'm saying, though, right, is that you have to have an incentive where it becomes clear that, hey, we'll we'll take the short-term pain here because 
because it gets us to where we want to go. And that's going to be the question is I, I think Florida in the past has been, a, has been an organization that does not look kindly on not following the rules. Um, at least has always held themselves out as, as an entity that does. So maybe that has an impact, but I don't know. I think at the end of the day, everybody's going to understand this was the wild West and, you know, probably be a slap on the wrist and everybody just moves on. It's also a third party collective. It's not an in It's not the in-house. It's not depends like, on, depends on what McDonald's you can pr- bags from assistant coaches and Venmo payments from inside the building. It's, it's a third party collective. So I think that's it a- depends on what you can prove, right? I mean, the, the, so there's one thing that I've learned in my professional career, which is that always talk to the lawyer on the phone, never send them an email. My suspicion is, is that they don't teach that in football 101 for staff members who are acclimating to the new realities of NIL. And so I suspect that if people are doing things that are untoward, that there are massive paper trails associated with emails for all of this stuff. And this isn't in Florida specifically. This is all over the college football landscape. I guarantee you that there is stuff that a lawyer would just go (laughs) 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 if they had to argue out of out of a out of a sanction. But again, this is what I mean about opening up that can of worms, right? How long does it take for an entity that wants to see Florida get hammered to get hammered themselves? Because the reality is, is everyone is doing this. And the only question is, did you do it in a high enough profile way in a circumstance where the player doesn't mind if the contract gets out either, right? I mean, if Rashada had a copy of that contract and NCAA investigators came to him and said, do you mind if we see a copy of that contract? There's no repercussions for Rashada. Right. And what's the incentive to not giving up that contract? Now, maybe they got back all copies and destroyed him as a as a condition of 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 releasing him from his from his NI or from his NLI national letter of intent. But again, I don't know whether everybody was really dotting their I's and crossing their T's two two years ago when it came to NIL. So yeah, I, I suspect I, I suspect there's emails everywhere. And that if Florida did stuff that was that was against the rules, that the NCAA or whatever entities investigating will have them dead to rights. The question will be, what is the value in having them dead to rights? And is there any way they drop a hammer without having to really nuke their entire system? Which is, again, we talked about incentives earlier. The NCAA is really a toothless organization that gets told what to do by the commissioners of the SEC and the Big Ten. And so if the SEC doesn't want a hammer dropped on Florida – the NCAA ain't going to drop a hammer and it doesn't matter if they've got a smoking gun and it doesn't matter if they've got all the evidence they need just mounted up, you know, sitting in an office somewhere is if, if Sankey says, don't do it, they're not going to do it. Yeah. It's not, it's not 1984 anymore. It's not 1984. I'm not, I don't think there's, I'm not really worried about it, but it'll be, it'll be interesting to see what comes of it. Cause I think at some point there's gotta be some precedent set from the NCAA, but until a lot of this worked out going back to the first part of our conversation here. I think there's a lot of pieces to work out before the NCA gets any teeth. I will, I will vacate. I will vacate the five and seven season from 2023. <laughs> Happy to vacate the five and seven season. You can't make me get back that one against Vanderbilt. You can't make me get it. You can, I'll get back the loss against Vanderbilt last year. We'll, we'll give that one back. So that could that, keep that one. But yeah, I always thought it was funny. The third party collective role, obviously they changed it before last season 
But in the first year of NIL where they're like, oh, yeah, they took, the coaches can't talk to the collectives. So like, uh, how do they know who to recruit? How do they know who they're paying? They talk to the collectives. They just said they do. <laughs> how do they know? What, what's going on there? <laughs> they just know who to talk to. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. Goofy stuff, man. Goofy stuff. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on that NCAA investigation. Hopefully it's uh, hopefully it's a lot of nothing. But we'll, we'll keep – obviously something to keep an eye on throughout the offseason. So uh, we're going to kick it to – one final section here to go out. Uh, Ronald Powell passed away this week at the age of 32. Our, you know, our thoughts and prayers go out to his family. Ronald Powell, great Gator. Here's a quick message from us. 